Are you still trying to reinvent the wheel? Tens of thousands of professionals have attempted to solve the same challenges you're dealing with right now. Some of them failed, some of them succeeded. But very few of them succeeded and captured their proven approach to share it with the world. Mike Kunkel is one of these very few. He has been an enabler for over 30 years and has captured his proven approach in an extremely successful framework called the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement. Mike and I have now translated the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement framework into a learning experience that helps a new generation of enablement teams fast-track their journey to sales enablement mastery. Our combination of group coaching sessions, actionable video lessons, materials, resources, networking opportunities and templates makes mastering sales enablement best practices faster and easier than it has ever been before. So if you want to stop reinventing the wheel, maximize business impact and fast-track your career, consider joining a growing community of enablers at the Building Blocks of Sales Enablement Learning Experience. To learn more, visit goffwd.com slash blocks. That's g-o-f-f-w-d.com slash b-l-o-c-k-s. Some research from Strategy and, which is PwC's consulting arm, in 2019 found that 59% of senior leaders believe they had a strong culture in their organizations, but only 26% of their employees did. So it is something that senior leaders can be in denial about. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. If the culture of a sales team is bad or even toxic, enablers fight a constant uphill battle. So how do you turn the culture of a sales team around to incentivize positive behaviors and ultimately set sellers up for success? In today's episode, we're joined by a special guest who has led major culture transformation projects. He'll share with us what the symptoms of a negative culture are, how to approach the transformation discussion with senior stakeholders, metrics to consider, and pitfalls to avoid. Please welcome the head of APJ Sales Strategy, Operations, and Enablement at AWS, Damien Lorshi. Damien, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks, Felix. Great to be here. You have been speaking at a conference late last year, so therefore some of our listeners in Australia might be familiar with your name, but for those of them who aren't familiar with you and your career, and also maybe for the listeners from the States, please tell us a bit about your background and what you do now. Yeah, I've got a, a really diverse background, actually. I've done lots of different types of roles over the years, but always around technology sales. I've been in technical roles, project management, bid management, commercial management, sales leadership. Where I really cut my teeth in culture was in my previous role at Telstra, which for those outside of Australia, if you're not familiar, is Australia's largest telco and technology uh, business, where I worked in enablement and transformation for the enterprise and government business, which is really a sales and frontline customer service account management organization of about 3,000 people, mostly in Australia. Right now, I'm in a program role at AWS, which is the cloud computing services business at Amazon, working in sales strategy operations and enablement across APJ. Awesome. 
powering the internet's infrastructure, not a big deal. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> so, Damien, sales culture and culture in particular is still a bit of a vague topic for a lot of business leaders. You know, some might understand it because they've been involved in transformation projects like yourself, but some might still mistake it for the swag that is being handed out when somebody starts in a new role to incentivize LinkedIn posts. But just from somebody who's really immersed in that topic and is really familiar, what is your definition of culture? Yeah. So the short answer is, in air quotations, it's the way we work around here. It's the choices people make, how they think and act when no one's watching. That's the short answer. The longer answer is a definition that I've adopted from a firm called Walking the Talk. And that is, Culture is the patterns of behavior that are encouraged, discouraged, and tolerated by people and systems over time. And it's created through the unspoken messages that people receive about what's valued in a business through behaviors, systems, and symbols. So like you said, people might think it's merch or, you know, I've seen teams stand up culture initiatives that just result in team lunches or team drinks. And these kinds of social activities, not to say that they're not sometimes important on their own, but they won't create or change the culture of a team because they're not structural or deliberate about shaping people's mindset or behavior in how they approach their work. And the important point is that a healthy culture on the front line of your business, that is people thinking and acting, working in the best interest of each other and the customer, create that positive feedback loop where happy, empowered employees feel that they can do a good job and satisfy their customers which leads to happy customers, which leads to reduced churn and increased sales, which leads to optimism in your workforce, and, and on it goes. And unfortunately, the opposite is also true. So it seems like based on your definition of culture, it seems like any business has a culture, no matter if it's a good one or a bad one. Is that fair to say? 100%. Culture, if you're not deliberate about the sort of culture you want in your business and deliberately shape it, a culture will evolve on its own. And that's just going to be driven by the loudest voice in the room, the most influential people, the culture that they brought from the previous organizations that they worked at. Unfortunately, sometimes the more outspoken people can be the people that sort of don't set always the best example. And when people start to follow them, you can get an unhealthy culture. So what are some of the indicators that there is an unhealthy culture if somebody isn't a leadership position or somebody wants to spark change within their organization? Like what are some of the symptoms to look out for? Yeah, there are a few. Engagement scores are the big one. You know, I, I realize that someone who's not in a senior leadership position may feel that they don't have a lot of control over engagement scores. But I mentioned that one because it sits across everything and tells you whether your people want to be there. And if they don't want to be there, you will see other symptoms like change resistance. So let's say you've got new technology you're investing in and people just won't take it up. Let's say CRM or something like that. I'm sure a lot of people can relate. That's an example. New processes, let's say order processing or sales processes or methodology that you're trying to implement. Resistance to that is another common one. Role changes. You know, People continue doing their old job after their role may have had to have been redefined in some way or their territory adjusted. And ways of working, so how you partner with others, how you capture and leverage data, that's another one. A couple of other big ones that we tend to see or that people might 
recognize as an indicator that their culture needs work is when you notice a culture of blame. So people are always waiting for someone else to solve their problems, or there's a, an everything's broken mentality. Attendance and productivity can be another indicator. And in sales, you know, constantly slipping deals, constantly focusing on the bottom of the funnel. They're all symptoms besides the engagement scores. And I'd like to say that senior leaders might be adept at identifying these things and picking up that culture is something that needs a little TLC in their business. But actually, the data tells us that they don't always do that. Some research from Strategy And, which is PwC's consulting arm, in 2019 found that 59% of senior leaders believe they had a strong culture in their organizations, but only 26% of their employees did. So it is something that senior leaders can be in denial about. Very interesting point and probably also a reflection of the disconnect that is there between senior leaders and the frontline staff, oftentimes, I find from my experience. So Damien, the reason why I was really interested in catching up with you today is because you led a big transformation project at one of your previous employers, Telstra, which is the biggest telco here in Australia. And I'm really interested in delving deep into that journey that you have gone through in that scenario. I want to start off by asking you, what has been the insight in Telstra's case that has led to the realization that change is needed? The real catalyst for our concerted investment in culture was twofold. So first of all, it was an engagement score of around 60, meaning that two out of every five employees were checked out. So what was done about that? Engagement became a KPI for everyone in their business that their bonus was tied to. So what happened when the annual engagement survey took place, everyone said they were engaged because they all wanted their bonus, even if they weren't. So that's definitely a strategy to avoid. <laughs> the second one is actually it was a senior leader change. A new group executive arrived who intrinsically believed that a highly engaged employees make the customer experience. They advocate for your brand and your product and disengaged employees break it. And coming into an environment with an uh, engagement score of 60, building a productive culture became a top priority. And that task was given to me. But in hindsight, you know, we were experiencing all of those indicators. We were just talking about the change resistance, the blame, the reactivity, slipping deals, focusing on the bottom of the funnel. They were all present. It was only later that we realized that a focus on culture was the remedy. Got it. So you mentioned the engagement score a couple of times already. For those listeners that might not be familiar, what sort of engagement score is kind of typical to see across a business? And also, is there a tipping point where you might see a engagement score being more likely to improve or more likely to decelerate if you reach a certain score? With engagement scores, the trend is your friend and you do want to monitor it. It's something that you shouldn't just be looking at annually. I know at Telstra, they used to do it annually. They went to like semi-annually, so twice per annum. And then they went to a method where a quarter of the business would get a pulse survey every quarter. So over the course of the year, the entire company would be surveyed, but we had that quarterly sample, which would tell us which direction we were tracking. Where's the benchmark that sort of indicates that you're in a healthy place or, or not healthy place? That's a trickier one to answer. And it probably will vary by the type of business that you're in. So Telstra being a very large corporate I would say an engagement score of 85 is probably world-class. 
it's going to be hard to find a big, I'll just say a legacy corporate, meaning that they're not a digitally native business. In a large corporate like that, that has a bit of history and legacy and dare I say it, baggage, to reach a score of 85 is actually tremendous. And that would tell me that you have excellent engagement and probably a good culture. It's hard to say that there's a threshold below that where the alarm bells should start going off, but then I come back to my point on the trend. And if you can maintain a high-level trend around that sort of 80 to 85%, which I would say is an A grade, you're good. If it's increasing, you're good. It's when you see the decline that you need to react quickly. In a smaller, more agile, more nimble, a smaller organization where there's less disconnection between the top and the bottom of the business, you may even actually be able to see higher engagement scores in the 90s to indicate that you've got a really strong engagement and a good culture. So once you realized that there was an issue, how did you actually engage senior leadership from a sales perspective to actually drive that change project? Well, thankfully, we had our group executive on site from the get-go, this new senior leader that came into the business. But it was still important to get really strong buy-in across the leadership from the executive team to the front line. And for the executive team, we used data and facts that underscore the thesis that culture drives engagement and engagement drives performance. And that data included, for us, Qualtrics research that suggests organizations that take deliberate steps to improve culture experience 87% decreased turnover. Now, just think about that, the impact of that alone on your sales force productivity and customer relationships. Gallup also found that you get 41% less absenteeism and that businesses with high engagement are 23% more profitable. These are not numbers to be sneezed at. They really get the leadership's attention. And as I say, when we've been grappling with some of these symptoms that we weren't blind to, but we didn't realize culture was the answer, we really had their attention. Once we had their attention, we got the executive team involved in defining our desired future state by workshopping the cultural priorities that we wanted to focus on. And best practice would be to only pick one or two to focus on at a time and identifying the biggest blockers. And in our case, we focused on accountability. So do what you say you'll do. And one team. And later, we also then focused on customer obsession. But by having the executive team hands-on in that process, you would know that that engenders a great sense of ownership and understanding of the narrative that allows them to communicate it effectively as a priority to their respective organizations, meaning we were all on song. So it oftentimes happens that leaders might pay lip service to whatever the direction that the executive defines. Everybody sits in a room, nods and takes notes, and then everybody leaves and then nothing happens. How did you actually make sure that there was accountability across the leadership team? Like, was it the way you structured communication or the way you provided updates? How did you tackle that? Well, there were a couple of things. We really spoon-fed them what they needed to communicate effectively with their people. Having them on song by having been immersed in that process of defining the future of our culture definitely helped. But giving them the tools that made it really easy for them to communicate effectively with their teams helped a lot. We invited them into the spotlight a lot as well just to give us their take and I guess their wish for the future of how this change could affect life in our organization, what it's like to work there. 
And it was also embedded into the regular cadence of the SLT meetings where, A, each of the executives sponsored an initiative and, B, we would get some of our frontline people that were working on some of these culture experiments to come in and give the rest of the executive team an update on what they were doing, how their experiment was tracking, the responses that they'd seen, what, what any help that they might need and that sort of thing. And in doing that, actually, each of the executives, <laughs> funnily enough, you know, you notice a little bit of competition between them that they want the person, the people that are coming in to present that they're sponsoring to be the best. <laughs> and so there was a little bit of competition through ownership, I guess you could say, that really got them deeply involved. Yeah. That's what I call positive competition, right? Yeah, for sure. Everybody here wanting to be the best at improving the culture. And that's a great scenario. Yeah. So you've had senior executive leadership buy-in, you've set your priorities, you've put the structures in place for people being held accountable. What were then the steps you took to actually implement the initiative and make sure that you actually arrive at the destination? Yeah, this is the real story of the execution here. The first thing we did was have the group executive stand up and tell everyone in the business that this is something that we would be working on really transparently. It's not something that's beneath the covers. We have an opportunity to build a culture that's going to serve our business better than what we've got today. We had to do it in a way as well that was really about recognizing the strengths we already have and holding on to those, but working together to address this engagement problem that was holding us back in so many ways. So he was really honest about it. And he was also really honest with the audience that there would be four types of people out there. There would be those who are already role models. There are those who are going to be open to change. There are going to be followers. And there will be those who will never change. And actually, life could get difficult for that last group as we make progress. And so think about whether that's you. And if so, what your next best step might be. But really, we want to welcome everyone on the journey and be a part of it. So in setting out those groups, we appeal to those people who are already role models who want to make a difference, to volunteer and become, we call them culture champions. These were people who would work with us on the change program in addition to their day job and help us get those who are open to change across the line. The theory being that once we had those people, we'll have crossed the tipping point to get the followers on board, which according to Malcolm Gladwell, the tipping point is 20% to get 80% of the impact. So that was the theory there. Now, with our culture champions, that we recruited a mix of people. So thankfully, lots of people had volunteered. We really had a wealth of people to choose from. So we, we selected a mix of roles, mix of seniorities, mix of people from different teams across the business and different geographies around Australia. It was mostly focused on the Australian business. So when we recruited those culture champions, we hosted them at a two-day offsite workshop to immerse them in what culture is, how to change it, our objectives, their role as culture champions, which besides executing some experiments, was to be the role models and influencers, the eyes, ears, the mouthpiece for the program, and collecting stories actually because, as you know, success stories are so powerful in communicating concepts and persuading people to change, especially when they're hyper-relevant. So when it involves our business, not some other business, or even better, someone they know, 
then they can adopt the narrative of that story and put themselves in those shoes and make that change themselves as well. In the workshop, we also had the culture champions that were then doing some work on their own. They were defining a set of experiments that would help people start to think and act differently in the direction of our priorities. So for example, take that priority of accountability. The experiment that was introduced for that was this concept of above and below the line thinking. Some people may have heard of this before, but above the line is taking accountability and below the line is blame, justify, deny, avoid. And a basic or maybe slightly abstract example is if I'm late for something and I blame the traffic, well, then that's below the line. Assuming the traffic's not unusual. I'm a grown-up. I should have allowed time for traffic, so that's on me. So I've got to be accountable for that. I don't blame someone or something else for that. And one thing that worked pre-COVID as a visual reminder for this above-the-line thinking was putting up a band of masking tape around the walls of the meeting rooms. And when we shifted to virtual working, some people were using virtual backgrounds just with a line across it. But we would see examples of leaders making statements in town hall type settings and then pulling themselves up and using that language. So they might say something and then go on and say, oh, hang on, that was below the line, sorry, and then restate their intention in a way that showed the kind of accountability that we wanted from everyone. I love that example of above and below the line thinking to foster accountability, which was one of the priorities that you have defined. Did you have one sort of visual like that or one sort of practical tool per priority you've defined or were there more? All the experiments were different. For that particular one, the team used a couple of different methods. So another method that they had was this concept of an elevate card. And it was something that was sort of distributed broadly, you know, beyond the team that was running the experiment, but all sorts of people got this elevate card. And the idea was it was just something that they could have on the meeting room table It's a little bit more obvious in a Teams call or a Zoom call or something like that. But if someone was going below the line, someone could just pick up this Elevate card and just hold it as if they were just holding on to something, not presenting someone with a yellow card or a red card. But someone might actually notice that visual cue and just think in their own mind, oh, hang on, am I going below the line here? So that was the above the below the line experiment. We had 14 different experiments of which that was one. Ultimately, when we reviewed which was successful and impacted, we eliminated eight. And of the remaining six, we consolidated the concepts of those six down into two change packages that we then rolled out across the business. You were specifically looking after the sales side of things, and you mentioned there was a business-wide initiatives across all kinds of other departments. But specifically from a sales perspective, what were some of the results you've seen after the rollouts? especially in those in relation to those KPIs that you mentioned initially? Yeah, for our part of the business, so enterprising government, sales and account management and customer service. So we got that engagement score up from around 60 up to 85 over 18 months. I'm not sure we really knew it at that point as to how much further we could go with that engagement score. But in trying to determine a benchmark, that's where we did find that Even 82 for a large sort of corporate organization is a world-class engagement score. So we were really happy about that. Not only the score, but when you collect verbatims from people when they're talking about what's working for them and what's not, 
the mentions of those symptoms we talked about earlier, the process issues, the role clarity issues, and the change resistance, those mentions all dropped away. And because people were starting to realize that they can wait for the cavalry to come and magically fix everything, which ain't happening, or they can take accountability and implement small fixes every day on their own that just get us that little bit closer to a simpler, healthier, happier business, we sort of started to see that snowball in the business. Now, that did two things. That set the business up for the next big wave of change that was needed to accomplish the strategic transformation objectives without breaking the business. So that was a pretty big deal. And the second thing was the sales effectiveness KPIs all trended up as well. So pipeline size and shape, coaching deals at the top of the funnel, the number of accounts and deals with plans attached to them, CRM data completeness and hygiene, that sort of thing. So we were slightly surprised actually, but delighted with the impact that that program had. So you mentioned the different kinds of people that you will have across the business, the four different groups and the sort of people that will support you in driving that change and the people that might be better off finding an organization that is more suitable to their attitude to culture. What sort of role does hiring play? And is there a way to effectively incorporate those sort of cultural values in the hiring process and actually probing for those when you bring new people into the business? I think it plays a huge role. And we never got that far down the track of implementation of this culture program at Telstra before I moved on. But let me tell you, this is something that's a fairly significant focus at AWS. AWS, well, I should say Amazon more broadly, have these 16 leadership principles, which sounds like a lot, but actually they're all very relevant and they all complement one another. And some of them sometimes feel a little bit contradictory. And I think that's just the nature of them. For example, we want to be frugal, but we want to be customer obsessed. But there are nuances in how they come together. And when I was joining Amazon, it sort of occurred to me, Amazon is growing so fast. There'd be some days they would make 10,000 hires. And how, when they're growing that fast, how do you maintain a culture? And how do you make sure you bring in the right people? And their hiring process, which... You know, there's a lot of material out there on the internet that you could research about Amazon's hiring process. But initially, they screen on role fit based on skills and experience. And if you pass that screen, then you go through what they call the loop, which is a series of five interviewers with people from different parts of the business. So not just the hiring manager or the hiring manager's team, but different perspectives, looking at a couple of the different leadership principles. So each one's looking at two different leadership principles out of the 16 and how well you exhibit those leadership principles in what you've done in the past and you've accomplished in the past. And they also have this concept of a bar raiser involved in the loop. So one of the five is a bar raiser and their role is to try and ensure that anyone that they bring in has the potential to perform at a, a level that's higher than 50% of the existing team for that role, function and level. I've seen it in action at Amazon, and that's a business with a really strong culture, a really strong culture of innovation, really high levels of engagement, and growing really quickly. And it's that integration of the leadership principles, which is such a big driver of their culture, into the recruitment process so deeply. 
So there might be a lot of listeners that are either right in the midst of a culture transformation project or are about to embark on one because they see issues with their sales culture. Are there any tips you can share as somebody who has been through the process and any pitfalls people need to consider that they might typically encounter when navigating a culture transformation project? There are, there are a few. So in terms of tips, I would say there's a lot of great literature out there that you can familiarize yourself with. And a couple of books that I can recommend is The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle and Walking the Talk by Carolyn Taylor. I would also say a tip is if you're starting out and this is something that you don't have a lot of experience with or if you're a little unsure of the direction to go, even after using some of those resources, recruit the help of an SME. So, you know, I'll give a quick plug here to Walking the Talk who helped us at Telstra. They actually helped us in a fairly light touch way. They sort of set us up with a framework, helped us with identifying our priorities with the executive team and helped us with the induction of the culture champions. But from there on, the execution was all us. So you can have them do all of that for you or you can do that yourself. The other one is observation is really helpful as well. Now, that's something that a, a consultant like Walking the Talk can come in and do really effectively as a dispassionate third party. That'll really get under the covers of diagnosing where you've got opportunities around improving the culture of your business and therefore engagement and performance. But you can do that with your own people as well, especially when you've, if you've gone as far as defining your desired culture future state and your cultural priorities, you can, um, and we did this in the, with the executive team as well. So every executive team fortnightly meeting, one person at the table was nominated as a, an observer, in addition to being a participant. But at the end of the meeting, they would give a debrief on what they observed, some of the dynamics that were healthy or not so healthy around the interactions, the psychological safety within the group, above and below the line thinking or anything else that we might have been playing with as levers in our culture change. So there's a couple of tips there. And Carolyn Taylor, by the way, also has an excellent podcast, Walking the Talk. I can recommend that too. Traps, some things that might trip you up. There was one thing in particular, I think, that we picked up on at Telstra when we were running this program with our culture champions. We actually had a hundred of them. And as I say, they were kind of implanted into every team and location around the country within the business. And unless you've got the frontline leaders on board as well, right, and those online leaders are providing sponsorship to the culture champs in their own teams, then those culture champions might not feel that they have the psychological safety needed to put themselves out there and drive these experiments and try and drive that change. And others might see that group of 100 culture champions is a bit of a cult. So yeah, that's a little trick to look out for, but get that frontline leadership on board as well, working with your executive team, but focus on them with a little bit of maybe some sort of e-learn that you can put together or a lightweight sort of immersion that's delivered specifically to them and making sure that you've got that executive sponsorship front and center, that's gonna be really helpful. Damien, thank you so much for joining today. This has been very insightful. If people want to connect with you online and potentially continue the conversation, where can they find you? Where do you hang out? LinkedIn. LinkedIn is the place you can find me. I'm there. You can search for me. If you're using search filters, I'll be the only Damien Lawshi at AWS in Sydney. Awesome. Thank you so much, Damien. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Felix. 
next time on The State of Sales Enablement. The sales manager, that sales leader, the book stops with him or her and the success or not of that program really lies with that middle tier. Considering the recent budget cuts in the enablement space, it is no surprise that in a recent LinkedIn poll, 56% of enablers stated that they plan to increase their ability to create business impact in 2023. I've teamed up with sales enablement legend Mike Kunkel to create a webinar that outlines proven approaches to maximizing enablement's business impact. To watch the seven steps to maximizing enablement's business impact, visit goffwd.com slash impact. That's goffwd.com slash I-M-P-A-C-T.